Good evening. Welcome to the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. Enter freely and of your own will. In this episode, you may find many strange things, for the films to be discussed are old, and they have many memories. So, be there. Be there. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. I'm your co-host, Jim Towns. I'm a writer and director and filmmaker here in Los Angeles, California. And I am Scott Kelly from Boston, musician, writer, all around, uh, kind of busy family guy that enjoys horror and getting my feet wet into podcasting. So... Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much. Great to see you, Scott. We uh, we are going uh, forward with this episode. Uh, we're dedicating this episode to... Uh, it's it's a movie maybe I adore more than a lot of people do. Maybe it's just a, a personal favorite. Maybe it's it's my own context. But I, uh, it's a lesser known universal film from later on in their cycle. But uh, it's something I've always enjoyed. And I'm, I'm dying to get into it and talk about it. This is House of Horrors from 1946. This is uh, one of the earlier films in Universal Studios' post-war era, uh, before they become Universal International. The Universal reassigned producer Ben Pivar, who had been doing a lot of noir films, uh, a lot of B films, <clears throat> kind of in a in a in a lateral promotion, sent him over. Uh, to their horror department. And he was in charge of creating a new franchise with a new villain, something Universal thought they needed to to inject some fresh blood, if you will, into their uh, into their cavalcade of, of monsters. And he was put, I don't know what his level of input is, but uh, he's the one who got together director Jean Yarbrough and writer George Bricker to create what was going to be the Creeper trilogy. These films were going to star Rondo Hatton, who who was an actor, came to Universal right in a few years earlier. He'd done he'd done one of the Sherlock Holmes films with Basil Rathbone. He had done a few other pieces, and then he had done Jungle Captive, where he played a uh, a kind of a brutish henchman. Uh, Rondo Hatton suffered from acromegaly. It's a pituitary disorder. Earlier in his life, he'd been a track and field star. He had actually been a com- he was a combat veteran, and he was a journalist. Around the time where he was a journalist, he began to suffer the effects of his his uh, disorder, which caused the bones to continue growing once they're fused after a point where they should have stopped. And it creates very exaggerated facial and physical features. And this is uh, where we see the unmistakable face of uh, Rondo Hatton. Yeah. And I mean, this is my first time where this is a you know very near and dear film for Jim. This is really one of my first times. I'd say I might've seen this years and years ago, but you know, as we were putting together our list of shows for the podcast, this is one that had kind of escaped me for years mm-hmm. and you know, I was really excited. I thought, you know, I, I consider myself a kind of a staunch universal fan, staunch horror fan, but this one just, it escaped me for some reason. It, it, so it's now very it, much on the, on the periphery. And partly is because this, this plan, trilogy never happened they they made two films in this series they made uh, this film house of horrors and immediately followed it up at the same year 1946 with a film called the brute man which features rondo in, in as the same character there's there's some confusion whether that is actually a prequel to this movie uh, like a kind of an origin story to the creeper uh, or if it takes place immediately afterwards it, it honestly having just watched them both last night again it could be either i i don't know Tragically, Rondo's illnesses caused him to have a series of heart attacks, and he died before either House of Horrors or The Brute Man was released. 
and Universal scrapped the uh, the the franchise, obviously, without him. And they sold actually sold off the Broodman to uh, PRC, which is a, a like monogram. It was it was a bottom feeder kind of very small budget. Uh, they called it Poverty Row Studio, and, and it was released to that. And and as far as I know, as far as I know, Broodman is very difficult to find. I searched all over for it, and I can't find it. The best I could find was uh, there's a Mystery Science Theater episode featuring it. So if you do want to watch it, that that Broodman is online. But the House of Horrors is available on video. It's available through a few a few different editions and avenues uh, on VHS and on DVD. Yeah. So one thing is, you know, as much as House of Horror did escape me, I'd always been a big Basil Rathbone and Sherlock Holmes fan. And again, just doing some research for this episode, House of Horror has never realized or kind of put two and two together that this character appeared in uh, The Pearl of Death, which was yeah. a Sherlock Holmes film back in, in 1944. So yeah, do you point Jim, if this is considered part of the trilogy, I think House of Horrors would be the second one with The Pearl of Death, um, you know, making rather a brief appearance in the Sherlock Holmes film. And like you said, The Brute Man which right. to date I had not seen. That sounds like a challenge. Maybe after this, we'll start out, we'll, we'll poke around and see if we can't get our hands on a copy. I, 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 would, I would love to see it. I, I just watched Broodman last night, despite the, you know, with the mystery side, with, with Crow T Robot and, and Tom Servo talking <laughs> over it. And it's still, it's always fun. The, the, the worst part of it is they have a pretty bad print they're watching. So it's, it's, it doesn't do it very justice, but let's get into House of Horror. Yes. Um, uh, House of Horror follows a, a the, the story is about a, a struggling sculptor named Marcel Delange. He's played by Martin Kozlak who was a German uh, refugee, uh, a citizen of Germany. He was virulently anti-Nazi. He was put on a death list. The SS were literally coming for the guy and he got out of the country and he came to Hollywood and he you know, had his acting career. He relished playing Nazis. Uh, unlike a lot of his, his fellow uh, refugees from Germany, um, he loved playing Nazis. He loved playing evil Nazis. He loved showing the the generousness, the generosity and, and the, the evilness of them. He played Goebbels like five times in, in different movies, apparently. It's funny. Um, I mean, he's a smaller guy, you know, maybe smaller guy, smaller stature, you know. I'm five sure five he, foot two. Yeah, yeah. Very, very two. diminutive man. I was going to say, I'm sure those roles that allowed him to play, you know, you know, positions of power and certainly bigger than life, despite his own physical shortcomings. You know, I'm sure yes. I could see that being attractive. I I, th I think so too. Um, and he really had. I mean, he did have the the bone structure of of a of a of an Aryan in his face, and so he has these very sharp, angular features and this very cool hair and stuff. So you, truly, you, you could see him cutting a, an SS uniform pretty well. And I think that was his own way of getting a little bit of revenge for what had happened to his country. He'd done a few Universal moves already. He was in. Um, she Wolf of London. He was in uh, one of the Mummy movies. I think it's the Mummy's Curse. He's in. Um, so he you, you can spot him in and around a few times around this this same era of Universal. He was five two, and and I think that was a purposeful bit of casting because we have this. Anyone who's seen a, a, Ron, a film with Rondo Hatton, we remember his giant the face, the the jaw, and everything that is is part and parcel his his image. I definitely think they padded him because I've seen photos of him of, of Rondo where without you know, in normal clothes. And he was, he was not an incredibly bulky, muscular man. He was a normal proportion man from the neck down. His, his face and hands and other, other parts of him had grown disproportionately, <clears throat> but he was only about five, nine or five, 10. So the, the idea of him as this hulking brute is, is created, I think, by casting other actors to be around him who were much shorter, right? Because then in, in by comparison, he seems gigantic when meanwhile, he was not himself 
that tall a, a person. And I think casting Martin, who was 5'2", next to him, those two spending most of the movie together definitely lends the idea of, of the Creeper as this as this monstrous kind of character. I mean, his shoulders, his, his arms, very, I mean, yeah. he almost looks like a football player. Um, oh, it's, it's yeah, it's like he's got huge, they, huge padding and stuff. Yeah, so, yeah, they stuffed his shirt. I mean, he looks like Popeye sometimes with like- But it, big, but it does, it gives him this and... unworldly, I mean, and it considering this is a, a guy who really didn't need any special effects makeup, I think that was like, well, we'll do this to make him a monster and, right. and it it does give him this uncanny silhouette um uh, marcel is an abstract sculptor in what i think we're supposed to think is, is kind of greenwich village of the 1940s in new york city his his stuff has this kind of uh matisse or henry moore kind of it, they're basically figurative sculptures but they're all abstract and, and disproportioned and there's there's strange body parts in incongruous parts of, of of the shapes and stuff very interesting stuff. And I don't know, I tried to do some research. I don't know who really did the sculptures for the film. I don't know if they borrowed real sculptures or, or what. But he lives in this rundown tenement type house with no, he has no electricity. He's, he's living off candles. He has a cat friend named Pietro and they're living on bread and cheese. They don't have enough money for meat. He's a starving artist. He's a starving um, and, artist. And we'll say, you know, at least one time during the, he has guests over you know, I hate cheese, right? You know, and I mean, yeah. he's, you know, he's dining on things that he, he hates. I don't I, like it either, but I got it. Yeah, I have all to. I can all do. right, it's my only sustenance. So yes. truly, the starving artist type. I mean, it's part of his great character arc as we start meeting some of the other characters, and yeah. you know, the Steve Morrow character, which we'll get to. You know, not so much a starring artist type, more the successful artist. And exactly by comparison. Yeah, by comparison, yes, yes. sure. Yeah, I, I just, I guess, part of as a guy who who went to art school and and was himself a starving artist for a few years before he became a starving filmmaker and then became a a, a getting by okay filmmaker um my account says i'm no longer able to class myself as a starving artist oh, i guess i sympathize with this and i love it's a horror movie that's set in the art world in new york city i mean what a it's such a neat incongruous kind of kind of setting for this and the the villains are some of the villains are art critics so to to get just the setting of the story going uh marcel is about to make a sale to it to a client of one of his sculpture sculptures that is going to set him up. It's going to give him a thousand bucks. It's going he's going to be able to turn on the electricity and buy meat and buy liver uh, for his cat to eat, and it's it's going to be great. The art critic brings or the the buyer brings along an art critic who is a hostile, unlikable, uh, very very acidic, as as they say in the film, uh, gentleman. And he's played by Charles Napier, who would go on to play Alfred in the Batman TV series. But he's that he's that real snob. He tells the buyer that Marcel's work is trash. They should never buy it. And he seems to be set on destroying Marcel's career and livelihood as just, just for fun. You know, he's a really, really unlikable character. Marcel chases the the buyer and the critic out with a with a, of his apartment with a knife. Uh, he smashes his sculpture. He's he's despondent. He goes for a walk. He walks by the river and he's thinking about throwing himself in and ending it because he's just at this nadir of, of his life. Enter the creeper who is in the water, drowning. Marcel goes down and saves him and rescues him and pulls him out of the water and somehow gets him back to his apartment. I'm not exactly sure how Marcel with his size manages to drag the creeper back to his apartment. Maybe the creeper can walk a little bit. I don't know. 
Yeah, he seemed to be semi-unconscious. Yeah, yeah, but to your point, was he's such a small man. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, truly, I think, you know, by this point, we start getting into a little, not quite act two yet, but really with act one, going back to your point, yeah. um, with the art critic and the and the buyer. So they discuss the, the art critic played, or his name is Hardin, by, you know, played by Napier, of course, if you remember the old Batman 66. Yeah. Um, Alfred, which was always a kind of a fun character, but he is, I mean, poisonous, just, you know, just cankerous calls um Marcel's work tripe. I mean, yes. over the top, unkind to Marcel. So right away, he's you know a character of you know of, of sympathy, and you know clearly you feel just awful for this 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 gentleman who's just trying to make his you know ends meet and you know do what he loves. Uh, and right. he's over the top, just nasty. A critic. So yeah, it does a great job of, of painting this art critic as, as like I said, as a villain, like as someone who who is doing this purposely to hurt people. I mean, it seems to be the way he gets joy, and right. he he does it to to Steve, the other artist later on. He seems to enjoy inflicting this kind of thing. That's that's his, all it is, right? There's power. no that's his, that's it. It's his power. There's no, he's nothing to gain by by this. Maybe he's just maybe he was a, you know an artist himself and just never had the talent, and now you know he's an okay writer, so became an, an art critic. And uh, you know his revenge on those with actual talent is to just be this cancerous critic who I mean as, as a as a filmmaker who has had his movies uh eviscerated by by people um himself I uh it it does it does just spark a, a huge amount of sympathy for for uh for Marcel and this is this is I mean similar to what we're talking about with uh when we when we did the episode of about man-made monster with Lon Chaney Marcel starts off as this very likable very sympathetic very sweet guy who's his best friend's a cat you know he's it's very similar to the Chaney character in, in man-made monster Monster, yeah. And it, it gives you all the more room for him to descend into into darkness in the film and, and it, to be that that fallen character. Yeah. Right. No, and that's why I wanted to stop because I mean, shortly after meeting the creeper, that obviously it, it was we'll get into things certainly change. But you yes. know, the first, you know, the first beats of this film, you know, Marcel comes off as an incredibly sympathetic character. Yeah. And yeah, you, um, you wish this guy was your friend. I mean, you, you know, oh, he's a very he's, nice guy. You I want to buy a I just want to buy anything off of him if he had you know small yeah, painting, yeah, small okay. sculpture, just something to help him out. He does. He seems like a very sympathetic character, but right. you know, and clearly like that, is doing a neat little i mean obviously the, the character's name is vaguely french uh Kozlex is doing an accent that i guess it maybe walks the border between france and germany a little bit it it, it comes and goes a little bit but he is do, the, as a german he is doing an accent that that is very noticeably french and if, and you can imagine this being an immediately post-war environment similar to what they did with with turning victor frankenstein into henry frankenstein and relocating the setting of the frankenstein movies this is a you can see this is a, a probably an intentional idea of of relocating his accent to some something that that doesn't connotate that, that connotates sympathy rather than enmity. Of right? course, I'm sure that yeah, of course, a lot of sensitivity. I'm sure the filmmakers knew exactly what they were doing. Right. The 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 art critics' nastiness, you know, established. Or um, Marcel brings the creeper home uh, to his house, nurses him. Uh, creeper has a few bucks in his pocket. Marcel goes out and gets food for him uh, and and them, and and he supports them for a week off of that. And he decides that the 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 creepers face is going to be his inspiration to create his, his next his his next piece which will be his masterpiece he he this there's a lot of um there's a lot of allusions within the film to the creepers face as being a, a neanderthal neanderthal face uh they say neanderthal i believe the correct current pronunciation is neanderthal meaning that he is like a de-evolutionary human he he's he's like a throwback to to something more primitive and and i think that's the the mythology they are trying to create for the the creeper is the idea that this is a man who is a, a throwback to a time where uh, human beings were more brutal and savage and violent and dangerous rondo plays him rondo was a journalist 
idealist. I'm sure Rhonda was a very verbose and an educated person. He, he again, he was a combat veteran. He was, you know, very heroic. He was a track and field star. He was voted the most handsome boy in his graduating class when he was in high school before his ailments took over. And and he plays him as this brutish character. He plays him as this kind of monosyllabic, very plodding minded kind of guy. You remind he me almost like has a- this kind of sharper, sinister side too, right? Yeah, I mean, almost he almost reminds me of a Jason Voorhees or you know Michael Myers. I mean, he really yeah, eat, yeah. Eat, eat, sleep, and kill. And mm-hmm. you know, obviously by this point he hasn't killed yet. But yeah, not a lot of he does speak a little bit, but you know, one or two word sentences. Yeah. I mean, like you said, I think they call him you know the quote unquote the perfect Neanderthal. Yeah, as yeah. you know, folks look at the sculptures, they look at Marcel's drawings of him. You know, over and over again, that prominent brow and the jaw. Right, there's immense sloping forward thing, and it does it does. His profile does make you think of a gorilla or something like that. So it's, a, I mean, you, you do get the idea. So very quickly, we established the creeper's sinister side. Uh, Marcel goes up to bed. The creeper goes to look out the window and he sees a lady walking uh, down the street. He puts on his hat and coat and in, in you know, he has, this, he has this very iconic flat, wide-brimmed hat he wears on top of this, this you know, gigantic head of his. Heads outside and he starts following this girl. He follows her down the street. She's, she's aware she's being followed and she's looking down the street. Uh, my understanding is that this character, uh, this the actress playing her who ends up who went on went on to be the Folgers coffee woman uh years and years later. Oh no uh, kidding. Yeah. Um uh this is she's much younger, blonde and quite attractive. The understanding is that she's a prostitute, although the film specifically never states that this is her occupation. Right. I mean she's, she's smoke she's she's hanging out smoking a cigarette. And yeah. she's leading a guy into a dark alley. So right. you know, Right. Right. Uh, of course, once he comes up to her and she turns and sees his face, her her enthusiasm for the <laughs> what's about to happen changes, and he uh, attacks and chokes her, which is. Well, it doesn't just choke her, he breaks her spine. Right, snap spine. And this is really yeah. the first, when the police get, obviously they find her body, her corpse, and it's the snap spine that is kind of clues in the authorities that, you know, this is this creeper. So really up until this point, we knew nothing about this character. So now, now with the police involvement in this snap spine, not the first snap spine victim in the area. Exactly. So now this is cluing in, you know, the authorities that this person, this creeper who is believed to be dead, you know, right. is he now back from the dead as he a ghost? Is it a, is it a repeat killer? But immediately, yes. just the way that the smoking woman, the, this prostitute was murdered is immediately clues in the authorities that we now have a, a repeat killer here. Either it was a repeat or, or, or the belief that the creeper is dead uh, was, was false, which does play into the idea that perhaps the Broodman film, the follow-up film, is a prequel because at the end of that film, he's shot and we don't know the outcome of what happened. We still never know how he ends up in the river and how this all ends up. The case being the next day in their in their nice little domestic situation, <laughs> the creeper and, and Marcel and the cat are sitting having breakfast and uh, talking about how broke they are. And Marcel <laughs> happens to notice the newspaper that this woman uh was uh they're eating they're eating potatoes i think for they don't have any meat they just have some potatoes and marcel notices in the paper that this woman was killed and the creeper says something like she screamed yeah no marcel said why and he's reading the article he said why would someone break a person's spine and immediately the the creeper's response is she screamed or she was screaming yeah so within i mean immediately marcel is clued in that you know this creeper, this gentleman killed somebody last night. Right, right. And and there's a moment of acknowledgement there, which immediately goes into Marcel reading the write-up that that the very evil art critic wrote about him and calling him crazy and calling him a madman and saying he should be in an asylum. And you want to be sympathetic for Martin, but, but his immediate reaction to it is sort of like, wouldn't it be awful if that guy's spine got snapped? Right. 
no and there's then, this acknowledgement right exactly yeah no no he yeah he knows and i think it without you know without too many beats passing he you know understands i think what he has sitting at his dinner table yes. is that yes. somebody that he can manipulate he um, and um, again so all of the sympathies you felt for this starving artist you know dear marcel who's getting panned by this critic you start yes. seeing now his character arc becoming somebody with hate and revenge in his heart yeah it's and it, and the, if if i do have a problem or a criticism of this film it's the fact that that he he doesn't marcel doesn't really the, his downward slide of his his morality is is more like a sheer plummet it, it for 20 minutes he's okay and then he's he's just a it makes you wonder, you know, he's probably, he must've been at the end of his rope when, at the beginning of the movie, you know, when the critic came in and the buyer came yes. in. At that point, Marcel must've truly been at the end of his rope. Yeah, you know? and I think that, that what happened, the destruction of his his career as he sees it by this by this guy sets him off. There's also, I mean, he there's a few lines in the film Marcel has that allude to this idea of like, he's he's bothered that he was born this, this small man, this small weak man that he can't himself take someone's throat in their hands and, and and choke them or, or break their spine that he he's physically incapable of doing these things he wants to do so so the creeper becomes his surrogate in in these ways like the creeper becomes kind of his he employs him to be kind of his hide to his jekyll right that's a great comparison that's exactly yeah. what it is yep and their their relationship is really neat he never tells the creeper to go kill the guy he just says the creeper's like where does he live uh, marcel tells him and the next thing we have is that the creeper uh goes to visit the the art critic in doing so he runs into what's her what's the what's, oh jo- um, joan medford joan medford yes joan medford uh who is another art critic in the city uh this one much more on the side of the of the working artist she is fantastic i mean the actress oh, yeah. that played it virginia gray uh and again you know we're talking in you know one of the last podcasts of just the how many um i don't say terrible parts but really weak parts for female actors right um during this time but joan medfield what a great strong just beautiful just oh, yeah. you know strong-willed character i mean really a really a delight in this film and um, and a wit to match everything oh, her just, dialogue is so well written it is totally like screwball comedy fast smart dialogue yeah, it's fantastic. And then you see, you know, men working for her. I mean, she's, like you said, she's yeah. a critic, but, you know, men running to do her errands. She'll exactly. bring in, later on in the film, we'll bring in the the drawing of the creeper. And she says, you know, here, take this, make, you know, five copies. Oh, yes. You know, I don't know if he says yes, oh, ma'am. But yeah, got to hurry. Like, yeah, everything's got to yeah. be a rush. Yeah. Right. Everything has to be a rush. But, but, but they do it. She's has some, she has some authority, which is, she, I mean, she's it's really, she, she's, yeah, she's um, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Slightly, slightly tainted by the last line lines in the film where, yeah, but, but we'll get we'll get to that, right? Um, As I said, uni- uni- the end Universal's always had a little problem with endings, but um, yeah, they they do. They kind of undermine the the everything they've accomplished. I agree. Anyway, so she uh, Joan is going to visit the the nasty art critic Charles Napier's character um, because this critic has also written a negative review of her boyfriend, who's who's also an artist. What's his name? Sorry, yeah, Steve Morrow. Steve Morrow. Yeah, Steve. Um, I'm good with the actress names. I'm always terrible with the, with the, and she's, she goes to this guy's office to argue with him uh, about possibly changing the review. It, they have a lot of banter back and forth. This guy reveals himself to, to not only kind of hate artists, but also be quite, quite a misogynist as well. 
yeah, I mean, he's quite a bit older than than the Joan character, but yeah, playing upon you know his ego, and she kind of plays along with him. You yeah. know, for I think before you know maybe the first time I watch this movie, or you know, until you get to know the character, I thought she might have been sincere when he was saying, you know, I'll take you out to dinner, and I don't know the exact words, but I thought, oh, here we go again. You know, another character from the '30s, '40s, kind of yeah. a weak-willed woman just going along with the the the, the man, but it's not yeah. so much the case. She's actually playing him a bit. Yeah, she's saying, well, maybe let's see. She's stringing him along because she's trying to get what she wants that's right um so so she leaves and then very quickly after that the creeper shows up and does what he does and the next day everyone everyone within the context of the film finds out that this art critic has been killed again with snap spine in a natural the nature of the the mo of the creeper inexplicably a a a police detective starts investigating steve the who who is a I, i guess the best thing we could call steve i mean he's an illustrator he's a painter sort of more of the cheesecake variety within the within the film he's he's working on a, a painting of a of a woman standing there with a tennis racket and a, and a tennis ball and, and he, it seems like it's it's taken him like a couple weeks to do this one painting which i don't know how he supports himself as an illustrator if it takes him this long to do yeah he seems to have piece. a it seems <laughs> to be his time. his seems to be his speciality that he's you know, yes. he paints women um you know beautiful and, and i figured that you know the art critic the napier character goes into it that all oh, this morrow you know he's thinks he's a lot more talented i mean it sounds like he's monetarily successful he makes yes. money but you know the critics have no respect for him because he's playing on you know he's almost selling sex you know the right, beautiful right. woman in this right. you know scantily clad clothing and etc yeah. so it sounds like you know as morrow is talking to his model that you know she's the next in line in the steve morrow and it, i apologize if i forget the exact name is but it sounds like this is a line of you know paintings that he's doing Featuring beautiful women. Yes, yes, possibly for like a uh, like a periodical, like a Sports Illustrated or something. You know, he's and he obviously his house is really not. I mean, his apartment is really nice compared to Marcel's. It's got lights and it's got a, a wet bar and it's you know it's pretty. He's he's doing well, but again, maybe not respected within the fine art world. So you get this idea that Marcel's work is considered too ugly to be art and steve's work is considered too pretty to be art so there's no you're damned if you do damned if you don't apparently in this in this town with the critics so as jane was going back um before harden dies in discussing you know just because you don't like apple pie doesn't make apple pie bad exactly it's all it's all it's all context and this is something as an artist you 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 are always argue that art is in the eye of the beholder and what one person's there are probably people out there who who think house of horrors is a a terrible film i that's fine that's their right i happen to think it's it's a it's a kind of a, a, a obscure gem there you go. There's there's room for everybody's opinion. Of course. Um, uh, we have met now Robert Lowry, who, who plays uh, Steve, the artist. He goes on. Uh, he he'd done about you know 45, 50 films before this point. Uh, he'd played a reporter in like thirty films at this point. I was looking <laughs> up his thing. He seemed to always get typecast as that, or like the buddy, or whatever. Um, yeah. He had a small part in Mark of Zorro, but. Most notably, he went on to play Batman in the 1940s, 49 serial Batman and Robin. So he was, he's really the first incarnation of a, a film Batman. Interesting. Uh, ironically, yeah. that he did that. And then Charles Napier goes on and plays Alfred in the 66 series. Isn't it funny? Yeah. I remember him from, I believe it was The Mummy's Ghost, the second Mummy's Ghost, yes. was the first film uh, that Cheney plays Karis the Mummy. But that's mm-hmm. where I remember I remember Robert Lowry from. Yeah. I'm like, anxious to get into those Mummy movies because me cause too. The, like I was saying about Universal trying to get, the creeper going as a franchise because the the other two franchises they're still kind of milking at this point are uh, the 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 Frankenstein Dracula ones have, have run out a little bit in in Frankenstein and House Frankenstein House Dracula 
the two ones they still have going strong kind of at this point are the mummy films, which they they're making, you know, they made like five sequels, four sequels to that and the invisible man sequels, which are again, like this film becoming lower and lower budgets, uh, very B grade films with B grade acting and B grade, you know, so you get the idea that like these, these other older franchise, more storied franchises are running out of gas. And this is them trying to take some of that talent, switch it over and, and create something new, which sadly didn't pan out for them. Yeah, I mean, by the end of the 30s, they start putting together the, the monster mashes with the House yes. of Frankensteins and the drag. You know, obviously, Mommy and, you know, the, the finding of Tutankhamun's tomb was such a hot topic, even throughout the yes. 30s and 40s, that, you know, there was always a market for the Mummy movies. Right, right. Again, it's, it's still an enduring thing. And again, I'm anxious again, because really the Mummy doesn't do a whole lot. He kind of shambles and he kind of walks around and stuff. But, you know, it, 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 you could see them starting to struggle for, for stuff at this time. Yeah, and, we'll get um, there. And also makeup was very difficult the, the the mummy movies required elaborate makeup the invisible man movies required elaborate special effects Ron, rondo comes on and and it's like okay let's let's pat him up a little bit and here's our monster like i, I don't want to call universal cheaping out but that if if your budget's a concern and you have just money in the bank just with an actor who's so unique looking as as rondo was you can see the appeal. Clearly, this is a low-budget film, but I can't say enough. I mean, going back, you know, with Man-Made Monster, some of my issues with that mm-hmm. film that I think they really nailed with this film is just the lighting and the shadows. Yes. I mean, is yeah. truly, you know, they call him the creeper, but him creeping along, you know, especially before he kills Napier's character, you see just the shadow. You don't even see the creeper, yep. just the shadow, the shadow. Going, panning down the wall, and then you're inside Napier's office. Yeah, and, and there's the these long tracking shots of him oh walking the tracks along with oh. him. You see everything passing behind him. You see this, this again, he's like a juggernaut. He's like unstoppable. He's just this, right. you know, marching. He doesn't plod. He doesn't stalk. He marches. He just kind of stalks along. And um, and uh, But I think at one point, the camera's in like Napier's chair and just looking out like the office window, and you just yeah. see the shadow closer yeah. and closer and closer. Yeah. So, it's very I mean, noir. I mean, I mean, you can see these these guys, these directors and film and, and writers and, and producers and, and camera people who came over from the noir department in Universal applying that similar, the stark lighting, the the, the interesting angles, the disguised re- reveals of, of characters. You can see them taking that that language and applying it over to the, the German expressionistic style of Universal's horror movies. And it's a it's a beautiful marriage. It, it works wonderfully. Especially, you're right, exactly, when you have no budgets. I mean, how yep. much does it cost to have just an actor and lighting and shadows? Mm-hmm. And I'm, have, yeah, I'm preaching to the choir, Jim. I mean, you you, <laughs> you know firsthand just really just what you can, how much you can do with so little. And it's really just goes back this to the talent. And, and, I, and I think Universal had also seen this done very well at RKO with, 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 with all the films over there, like I Walked with a Zombie and Cat People. Uh, all the Val Luton films, I, sure. he showed because because RKO had no money to make these movies, and Val Luton showed everybody just how much you could do with just lighting, just lighting, movies, right? Suspense. Yeah, exactly. performance and stuff. We always go back to this, but yeah. Uh, and I think this is them kind of going back and taking a page out of that book. So the this detective who's investigating the murders, despite the fact that they're done in very creeper style, despite the fact that there is no, they thought the creeper was drowned, but the consensus seems to be with the newspapers and everything that he's not. The detective still seems obsessed with the fact that Steve, the the cheesecake artist, is is the villain doing is going around breaking people's spines, and maybe that doesn't totally make a lot of sense. Except the the detective is very sweet on the tennis model that Steve's painting, and maybe that's why he keeps visiting him. I don't know. 
he needs he needs a suspect. And I think, you know, it goes yeah. back to prior to Harden, the Nate Pitt character, prior to Harden dying, he was in the middle of panning, writing an article, panning Steve Morrow's work. Yes. So really, you know, once the, the creeper kills him, that article remains in the typewriter. So, yes. you know, there, Jane so there is a motivation. I mean, so Jane sees it, of course, the, the detective sees it. So when they're looking for a, you know, a suspect or, you know, who might have the motive immediately, it's Steve. While all this is going on, Joan, our friendly art critic, uh, is starting to pay visits to Marcel in his studio. She's looking for something to write. There's not a lot going on. The The main news is is that this other famous art critic has been killed, but as she says she doesn't do the crime beat. She she does art criticism. So she seeks out Marcel in his in his little hovel and is curious about what he's working on. And as she does, she's, she sees under a, a tarp or a canvas the the shape of Marcel's new work, which is which is the bust of the creeper. This this it's at least three times human size. It's it's this gigantic face that he's working on of as as the creeper is modeling for him. He doesn't want her to see it yet. He says it's not finished. He offers her some wine and and he's promising her that she'll be the first one to see it. And stuff. so she's very sympathetic to, to Marcel. She she's someone who roots for the underdog, right? So I mean, again, this is why we like her so much. She's you know, she's on a, on the side of the, the angels in this. That's right. She's, but, a working, she's a working man's critic. Like I said, she very sympathetic and v- extremely curious. How you, know, you count the number of times she goes back to Marcel's, right, <laughs> Marcel's right, right. studio. And, you know, she looks at that, you know, like you said, that, that covered bust and, it, right. you know, and he promises her, you'll be the first one to see it. And she's always, you know, glancing at it, looking at the side but, of her but eye. But po- possibly as a journalist, having some ethical problems because she does, <laughs> when he says, don't look at it, the minute he walks out of the room, she looks at it. She wants to look and at it, right? It's like telling and a kid, the minute like, don't, she don't. gets a chance, she she takes, Martin ha- or Marcel has a little sketch of the thing, which I'm not sure why he, he's got the model there and he does a sketch and then he's working from the sketch, but the model's sitting there. I, it's his process, I guess. I won't, I won't question it. It um, is a great, it is a little pencil sketch he's done of it right it is a fantastic sketch by the way it is it's a wonderful sketch i wonder what that is oh my gosh how much money would that original Uh, sketch be worth whoever made that for the the production right jeez oh man that'd be a that'd be a prize so she and she steals that and and brings it back to uh to be replicated as 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 savvy a dame as as joan is she and, and is involved in the the creeper mystery because she's talking with the detective who's talking to her boyfriend steve the cheesecake artist about these killings and all this stuff as savvy and smart as she is she never makes the connection that marcel's model is the creeper even though the picture of the creeper's been in the newspaper and she's looking at the photo and the guys in the copy room she gives it to look at the two things they're like hey this is the this is the creeper uh joan until the end joan never makes the connection no it takes her a little while and i don't want to you know i don't want to shit on her too bad because i I do love her as a character very strong will but yeah she seems to be the last one to the party here she she, yeah she has to catch up (laughs) meanwhile the detective in an effort to capture to get steve red-handed he actually approaches another art critic, this art critic named Hal Ormiston, Ormiston, uh, played by Howard Freeman, who and tries to do uh, like a sting operation where he has this second, or this would be the third art critic, uh, write a really nasty review of Steve in the in the idea that Steve is then going to, if Steve is the creeper, he's going to pay this guy a visit and kill him, which Steve does. Steve shows up, he gets mad. And he he actively starts to throttle the guy. And then all the detectives jump out from the closet and behind the couch. And they think they've got Steve red-handed. He's he's the killer. He's going around killing all these critics who have uh, maligned his work. All based off of, you know, this article, this panning article found in the, you know, dead man's hand. That, you know, yes. right away, Steve, there's no other suspect. Steve is the, is the suspect. And yeah, they put in a lot of work and they convinced, um, you know, Ormiston to be part of this sting. And he's right. like thrilled. I don't know if it was like some competitive jealousy. 
jealousy or but he mm-hmm. he jumped at the chance you know maybe he's just he, you know leads kind of a boring life but he's like oh wow he's yeah, also can... kind of a nasty person he enjoys this idea of, of hurting, right. using his words to hurt people he, he also gets off on that yeah so so the uh bill bill goodwin plays this uh police lieutenant his name's larry brooks so and and it is this this worst example of police work where this this cop has decided that this guy is the villain and he's going to figure out what evidence leads him to prove his his presupposed theory. He's not following the evidence to to the truth. He's trying to find evidence that supports his his preconceived idea. That's right. Uh, which in, in police work and in science is never a good idea. While they have Steve, you know, the, the cops jump out and they grab Steve and, and they have him sitting on a couch and they're in the living room talking. The, the art critic is flustered by this and he goes in his kitchen to make a drink. And there, the the creeper shows up and throttles him because in his in his negative review of Steve, he's compared Steve's work to Marcel's as an example of how bad it is. And Marcel's read it and and he sicked the creeper on the guy. This obviously this uh, this gives Steve the, an alibi because Steve was sitting there with the cops when the guy was killed. So Steve is now no longer a suspect, and the the cops are convinced that uh, that they've you know their man is the creeper and the creeper's still around. Right. I mean, I think Jane at some point a little bit earlier before this tried to get let Steve off. I think he said, you know, he's with me last night till three o'clock. Yeah. And, you know, the lieutenant's like, yeah, yeah maybe, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll check on that. But, you know, until I have firm evidence, but cl- right, it clear at this point, there is no doubt that it's not Steve. Yeah. And, the, the and, and, you know, uh, Goodwin plays the detective, uh, you know, he's, he's likable. I mean, or, or, I mean, yeah, you know, he's, he's sort of a, an obstacle, I guess, in, in the pursuit of the truth of his own truth, I guess, and stuff. But Larry Brooks as the, as the cop is, you know, they, they make an interesting second story. You know, the, the beast, the, the A story is obviously Marcel and the creeper going about their dastardly business. And there's this just very con- contrasty B story of Steve and Joan and and Lieutenant Brooks, you know, solving this mystery. Yeah, I mean, Brooks, it seems like he's a little more involved with getting with, you know, Steve's model. If you remember, she's all yeah. going to Steve's, um, you know, his gallery, or not his gallery, but like his apartment, his studio, and then yeah. call, calling this this model on the phone. Right. Uh, you know, meanwhile, he's really missing a lot of pretty pretty important clues in this murder <laughs> mystery. Possibly right? should be spending more time <laughs> on the job. But but that leads us to, he does this. He, he calls and he, and he arranges uh, to meet Steve's model at Steve's studio while Steve goes to meet up with Joan for a date. It's some I, I I'm trying to remember why, but Marcel sends the creeper to Steve's apartment. Oh, because okay, so Joan one more time uh, has gone to to Marcel's uh, flat and has stolen his drawing of the thing. The creeper t- sees her do this. The creeper tells Marcel she's done this, and Marcel decides that that Joan now, as sympathetic and friendly as she is to him, needs to be eliminated because she. In his mind, he's convinced that she knows he's the creeper. Um, right. I think he's trying to convince. Or he's he's, he's con- behind the creeper. Sorry. Yeah, he's convinced that Joan told Steve, you know, yes. where she had the the sketch in his hand. That right. I think that's kind of what led now, you know, Marcel to send the creeper after Steve. He sends the creeper after her and Steve, I guess. But the creeper finds the the tennis model that right. is, wa- is is has changed and is waiting for the lieutenant to show up for a date, and the creeper kills her. And and the detective shows up, finds her dead. Right. Um. Meantime, Steve is waiting for. It's very. I mean, there's a lot going on in the story. There's parallel things happening. It's 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 far more sophisticated than than you you want to. I mean, if you go back to like the Wolfman, the Wolfman like is a very chronological lateral story. Like you know, things happen and then you know it happens this it happens this. Um, 
we're constantly going back and forth between two narratives, two storylines in this movie. And it's, it's very complicated mystery type storytelling. Um, it is, it gets very busy and yeah, I mean, so we've got the love, the love angles between, you know, two different love angles happening at the same time. We have a murder yeah. mystery. We have pol police lieutenants and reporters trying to solve, mm -hmm. you know, the crime. Yeah. To your point, it's, it, it gets very, I don't say it's, deep is the right word, but there's a lot yeah, going on. Yeah. There's a lot right? going on here. Yeah. Simultaneous storytelling. So, uh, Steve is waiting for Joan for the date at, at her office. Joan, meanwhile, has decided to go back to Marcel's place one more time. This time, Marcel has already sent the creeper to kill her and is very surprised when she shows up because uh, he's assumed that he, the creeper's state done his job. She shows up and he starts stalling and trying to keep her there. She does see his finally his his piece. His piece is now finished and, and undraped. She's marveling at it. And, and I think she's honest. I think she's she really does think it's good, but she's after some kind of thing with him. She she thinks she's figured out something about him that, that I've never quite understood what her motivation for, for being there is, and that's okay. But his motivation now is to keep her there until the creeper can come back and he can take care of her because he can't do it himself. He's physically smaller than her. You wonder if, if Marcel tried to go for Joan, if Joan might win the fight. It's it's yeah, she, you know, she, she called, might be able to take him out of their purse. You never she, know. <laughs> well, she, yeah, she calls him, hey, the little man, you know, yeah, towards yeah. the end and there. She is sort of she is sort of talking to him a little man and stuff. And I think some of Marcel's I do think in the in the film, Marcel does have a thing for Joan that he never maybe he hasn't even acknowledged himself and stuff. And and it's this, I don't want to call it like a Napoleon complex, but it is like a little man syndrome kind of thing. As a as a guy who's only five foot eight, I can I can sympathize a tiny bit to to, to some degree with this dude. <laughs> there was something going on, but yeah, you're right. I mean, going back to your point of, you know, now Jane going back to see Marcel, I mean, clearly her motive, you know, at least originally was to return. I mean, she, at this point, she still oh, has- Oh, that's right. She comes back to, to sneak the drawing back. The that's drawing right. back. She wants to get the drawing back in. That at that sense. point, the creeper's already there kind of watching them. Yeah. So when Marcel and you know, Jane are having wine, and then clearly it's kind of the final act of the film that Marcel now turns where he says, you know, it's too bad. You have to die. Yes. Yes. And he, he knows, you know, what's what's about to happen where Joan kind of turns on him she she sort of confronts him with the understanding that like that there's been a copy made of this this drawing the, the newspaper has it so killing her isn't going to help him at all because the newspaper has it they're going to make the connection which which she just finally has because because Marcel all out, all out told her that he's been sending the creeper out to kill people so it takes until then for her to get savvy with that right uh, he but, said, "Yeah, your, sign your signature's on the on this yeah. the portrait. I mean, and right. she, at, at some point, said, well, newspaper folks aren't dumb.' Yeah, and then yeah. at that yeah, point, exactly. as the and again, we have to remember the creeper is now watching these two you know, having right. this conversation. So Marcel immediately says, well, 'Well, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to play dumb. I'm just going to tell the police that, you know, the, the creeper, I was, he was just a model for me. I had no idea he was killing people. I'm just going to give him up to the police. And right. at that I'll, point, I'll, I'll, I'll turn him, turn him out. And of right. course, the creeper hears this and comes out. And now, now the creeper has a new objective. That's and right. It's to, to make him pay. And they have their final. I mean, I mean, you can compare it to, to the end of Frankenstein where, where Colin Clive and, and Boris Karloff finally go at it. Like Marcel hasn't created the creeper, but he has sort of been his, the, the puppet master uh, of the creeper. And the puppet finally turns on its master and the creeper chokes him out. We never Which see. There, obviously, the censors would never allow at the time that the brain office always was adamant about never a never seeing his hands on someone's throat. It always cuts away or it, it happens off screen where, where his hands, the creeper's hands are actually physically wrapped around somebody's neck. And they also apparently there was some gurgling sounds they originally wanted to have in there for choking. And oh. that got kiboshed as well. Yeah, I mean, really, to your point, all you saw was the creeper. I mean, you almost had him by the shoulders. 
Yeah. And kind of, yeah. you know, kind of bent him to the side and he's almost like he's gonna good. give him a really good back rub and then it's more of a wrestling match and then of you know sort of hits yeah, the ground. Yeah. But yeah, I mean you mentioned Frankenstein. I'm I'm so glad you did, but this final showdown between Jane and the creeper where she's on one side, I don't know if it's a cabinet or kind of a display case. You know, she's on one side, yes. the creeper's on the other, and the just the camera work panning between the two, and it brought me right back to Frankenstein so like- in the in the windmill. Mm-hmm. With Colin Clive and Frankenstein kind of peeking through that revolving the spigots. The, 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 the spokes that are revolving around. Spokes. I mean, didn't it bring you right back to that of kind of going it, back and forth? Does. And I mean that's that brought me right back to Frankenstein. And again, that's where this that's where the the noir cinematography and the German expressionist inspired cinematography from like Nosferatu and films like that. There's this perfect marriage. They're really the same language, they're with different dialects. And it's so successful. And and other films like Mystery of the Wax Museum and movies like that, like do you know, also have done this so well, like the, this marriage between the two two genres, um, this hybrid. Yeah, but it's great. I also, but I do love, getting back to the 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 thing they managed to do with the choking is is at the end this last shot where the the, the creeper is choking Marcel out below the screen. Marcel's face and body are below the screen. You just see the creeper choking. Marcel's hand reaches up and tries to push at the face right. of the creeper. This right. this giant overgrown face that, that Rondo had so weakly and so so impotently. You know, right? Uh, there there's Mar- Marcel has no hope against this giant brute of a man, and and he tries though, and that desperateness of just d- trying to push him off when obviously he knows there's no chance for that is uh, is really sad. And, and and for a character who dies off screen, like like he's our main villain, really is is Marcel, and and he dies off screen, and and that's something Universal always. Is, was forced to do, I think, because of the censors and at, at the time. Um, uh, it's still very... We talked about Lionel Adwell's death in Man-Made Monster not being very satisfying. For some reason, this one is to me. I I, I like the poeticness of, of, of that. And also his his fingers are trying to push against the, the creeper's face in a way like the way he sculpted his face out of clay, right? Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, again, this is, it's very personal, like this death. Yeah. I mean, going back to man-made monster, there was, yeah. you know, they were on, on, you know, either side of a door and, you know, they were electrified. This is extremely personal. We, we are yeah. flesh on flesh. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. This is a satisfying, I mean, again, it's all off camera, but sometimes that's, you know, let your imagination do the work for you. And sometimes that, that's the best, but I agree. No, this is yeah. a good, this is a good ending and just the desperation. Like you said, that meek little arm reaching oh. up and um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just and a then, matter and of then time. The, of course, the creeper goes goes for Joan, and uh, there's a gunshot through the window, and it turns out the detective has shown up. He got in touch with the newspaper. Oh, oh, and Joan's Joan's boyfriend Steve has shown up. Steve, by the way, you could take the Steve character out of this movie, and none of the plot would be really be different. Steve is is my the. Pr- just a perfect example of what I call the the impotent protagonist in this movie. He really affects almost barely affects anything. He's just, he's there, you know, there's a romance character there. Like he does some stuff, but he's sort of, I guess this movie's David Manners. uh, (laughs) (laughs) He's just there. He looks good. He's trying to do some stuff, but he's really, he's more in the way than he is actually a help, but that's okay. But he shows up at the end. The detective shows up at the end, shoots the creeper through the window. Um, creeper falls. They come in the door and, and res- rescue Joan. And there's a there's a line that I, it, it's kind of off, the, the character's off camera when you hear it. So it might be a dub line where they say, we got to get this guy to the hospital. They're laying right there on the floor. And I, you know, I took a note of this, that um, the brooding man was actually already filmed or film expected to be released after this. So yes. when you see a villain, you know, shot and killed at the end of a universal or really any, you know, horror movie of this, of this time, 
when do you see the quote unquote heroes now looking to get seek them help or get them help or bring them to yeah. a hospital? But yeah, yeah, they made it very clear. I think it was the lieutenant saying, right, let's get him and let's, let's get, get him this to, guy hospital to the hospital quickly. So he, can, so he can be in the sequel. So he can be in the um, sequel. Exactly. <laughs> we do have this, uh, the Daniel Moss scene where after you know, following the climax, you have, you have Stephen Joan in their, in their cab driving off and having a, a nice reconciliation. And the mention of, because uh, Steve has all, all been talking the whole time about how he doesn't like to Joan has to go to these places late at night with these strange men and stuff. He doesn't like that she has a career. And unfortunately, yeah, imagine, at the end, she, she turns him and is like, you know what? I don't want a career. I'll just, yeah, I don't want to be, be a, Mrs. Steve, right? I don't want to be a critic anymore or something like that's that. That's a bit of a bummer, isn't it? Last it time, is a bummer. Yeah. We'll, 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 we'll give it to him. It was, it, it was of the era. That is, that is House of Horrors. I just, I, I think. Uh, Again, it's an exciting movie. It's a it's a pot boiler of a of a mystery with with these overarching uh, allusions to to universal horror. It, it's it's universal doing two things that it does really well combined, and it's just whatever. But I do think what makes this film absolutely special is is Rondo Haddon's character in it. You could argue about Rondo Haddon's uh, thespian chops, I guess. Um, I'm not sure how much of it is is the character he's trying to play the 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 hesitant dialogue and the and the kind of delivery. I think some of it's the character, but but I think I think the specialness of him goes beyond that. You know, there, there's there's a history of of actors who are willing to exploit their own disabilities or uh, uh, handicaps for film. Um, you know, it goes back to obviously Todd Browning's Freaks mm-hmm. made a lot of use of that, mm-hmm. but it even goes to you know E.T. Uh, Steven Spielberg used a, used a boy who had who had no legs to play ET. Steven Spielberg is, and, and many filmmakers use uh, amputees, uh, like in Saving Private Ryan, to play wounded soldiers. There's a weird I don't want to call it a niche field uh, in acting, but there are lots of actors, and and I've seen casting calls for actors who who have certain disabilities, deformities, uh, handicaps. It's an interesting, uh, like I said, like a niche where an actor is willing to to show the thing that is probably something that they're so self conscious of and so uh, you know aware and, and makes them different. From from other people, but it's the thing that makes this film so memorable. Obviously, is 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 this character who you know this this is this happened, comes out the same year as uh, in forty six is is Jack Pierce's last year at Universal before they fire him and appoint Bud Westmore as as head of the makeup department and and you can kind of imagine Jack. Jack Pierce, who did Frankenstein and the Wolfman and the Mummy, looking at Rondo Haddon, going like, "What do I do with this?" <laughs> You know, I'm imitating his Greek accent that I've only heard from his from the Boris Karloff "Bet Your Life" uh, episode. But yeah, because uh, he was from Greece. Yeah, no. It's so what true. do you do with him? I mean, you just you just like the guy. You don't you don't make the guy up. The only thing you would have to hope and wish for is that he's handled the director, the movie, you know, the, the producing company just was respectful to him. You know, yes. didn't let him. You know, I could think the only thing that made me a little bit. And again, I'm not. I don't want to be overly sensitive here, but I mean, clearly he's not made up. Right. You know, these were his real features, but you know, over and over again, he was. You know, when they were looking at him or just the sculptures, you know, this ugly and yes. I don't brute so much bothered me, but you know, Jane a couple of times. Oh, this his ugliness. Yes. As he's as he's sitting right there, and of course, you know, I, I'm sure he's not, you know, he's not a babe in the woods here. Like he knows he's in the mirror each day. But right. you know, that was the right. only thing that I think kind of, caught, you know, made me feel a little bit, a little bit sensitive with this. Is that, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. The fact it's, that he's it's, not wearing, he's not wearing makeup. Like he truly yeah. is a certain way. And you know, you would have to hope behind the scene or behind the camera that he is the actor. You know, he he blessed you know lines like this. Yes, I, I uh, you know, I wish there was more. You know, you know, a, a, an earlier and bigger budget. Universal film would have tons of behind the scenes photos. Uh, 
photos of like, you know, Evelyn anchors trimming the Wolfman's claws and stuff, you know, you, they would always post those gaggy photos. Right. And I think by the time they got to this kind of uh, era of, and budget of their filmmaking, they weren't doing all like, cause I would love nothing more than to see a picture of Ron O'Hadden, like joking around on set with everyone. I think that would be really kind of Wouldn't fun. Wouldn't that be fun? Um, yeah. The way you would see uh, uh, like Kenny Baker hanging out with, with Anthony Daniels, you know, behind the scenes of star Wars or something where they're just having a good time. Still, and it's right. Everyone's using their uniqueness. I guess is is the way I want to I would want to say it to be memorable and and I do think this was uh, something that is of an era of filmmaking that you're not going to see again. You're not I think because, mostly because of medicine. I don't know if you're going to see a, a Rondo Haddon again. Luckily, hopefully, you know people can be spared the the problems he had because his problems led to a, a very early death, unfortunately. But I don't think the sensitivity of of people would be to I don't see a studio green lighting something like this now at all I, I think this is a moment in time that we have and it and it's interesting to reflect upon you know it is what it is and again without knowing any better i certainly hope that you know people were respectful of the actor yeah. um and yeah to your point speaking of his death he had died just shortly before this film was released he died yeah. february 2nd the film was released on march 26th so yeah he actually never, never got to see it come out never got to see this or the brood come out yeah. although he i i guess he was alive when the junk when jungle captive and the and the 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 uh holmes movie and he's he played a few, a few other small parts in other things a lot of things he was uh, uncredited he plays one of the men in the ugly competition in charles lawton's hunchback of notre dame version which now i gotta go back and look for him when when, oh, we, when we do wow. that i guess i guess the modern the most modern analog for for ronda would be someone like ron perlman right who who is a younger man and i've met ron perlman and i don't think ron perlman would would argue that he was a, a like a ford model <laughs> As a younger man, I think Ron, Ron Ron Perlman's gotten cooler looking as he's gotten older and grislier, right? But Ron Perlman, and with the with the, the addition of a lot of makeup, in his case, did use his you could call it a unique physiognomy to his advantage in movies like Quest for Fire, in Beauty and the Beast, the TV show, uh, The Name of the Rose, and all these films and stuff. But yeah, like, I mean, remember from Hellboy? I mean, clearly he had a lot of yeah, makeup and stuff yeah, on. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, if you're a casting agent, you're going through the books and you see, you know, David Manners a hundred times, and all of a sudden Ron per- Ron Perlman's you know, right. photograph comes up. Yeah. I mean, you, you stop and you pause and you say, he's a guy, he's a guy who's going to use. And, who is and this? The, I want to, I'm going to make a part for this guy. Yeah. Um, Tommy Flanagan's a good analogy too. Tommy Flanagan's, you know, the, oh, the Irish actor with this big scar on his face, you know, yeah. and he was in yeah. Gladiator and, and, and Guardians of the Galaxy and stuff like that. And here's a guy who's, who's his, he's got a memorable face and he's used it, you know, in, in so many things and, and he pops up and maybe not everybody knows his name, but he knows, oh, that's that guy with the thing. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Both in Sons of Anarchy, by the way. Huge great career with, with Ron Perlman. I Ron Perlman. Perlman. So, yeah. so it's funny that what I guess the point I'm getting to is it, it's neat that while actors like this would never have a chance in screwball comedies or in a, a modern romantic or like a rom com sitcom, you know, genre filmmaking does allow room for that uniqueness and has since the beginning of film. It's an opportunity if, if someone like that is interested in taking it. And I think because of that, you know, it, it adds different shades and colors to to our film history. And I think that's why it just as small budget as it is and, and as uh, slightly obscure on the on the branch of the universal, you know, horror Christmas tree as 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 House Force is. I th- I actually think it's a very important film, uh, and I'm I'm glad it's there. And I'm glad it's been preserved, and I'm glad it's available for people to watch. No, it's true. I mean, again, especially not to go down this this rabbit hole, but here we are again in 2020, and just the walls of really being torn down about what you know what people are, or you know what people are expected to be. 
You know, yes. you don't have to be, no one is put in a box anymore. Um, right. You know, gay, straight, male or female, really like those, you know, never more than, you know, probably ever in, the, in our life have we seen that, you know, truly people can be, you know, whoever, whatever they want to be. And they now yeah. have the strength and the support to do that. And, you and, know, and maybe art is a way that art and filmmaking is a way that those, some of those barriers can come down, whether absolutely. it's, whether it's having a, a a trans artist do the music for the next Bond film or or whatever. Sometimes those barriers are, are best knocked down by creativity, and and I think it's uh it's a powerful it's a powerful weapon for uh, understanding and empathy and equality. Yeah, well said, well said. Yeah, really great. Hey, great. Uh, thanks, Scott. This has been a great episode. Thanks for talking with me about this because this is this is honestly one of my weird pet favorite uh, uh universal films and stuff and i'm glad we got to do an episode on it oh me too no thank you so much for getting this on my radar i had a, I had a blast talking to you about it and um no thank you so much fantastic okay well okay well i'm jim towns and this is scott kelly and this is the borgo pass horror podcast thank you guys for listening we'll see you next time thank you for listening to this episode but the fun does not stop here you can follow and interact with the show's hosts and listeners online on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Borgo Pass Horror Podcast is a presentation of Shadow Camera Film and Entertainment. This episode was edited by Livio Marino. The music was composed by Sean Poole. Opening and closing narration are by me, Kat Herons. Show titles and graphics created by Jim Towns. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. Podcast.